0: Hello, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives for Disease and Childhood. Welcome to the April edition. In Kipling's seminal novel, Kim, the central premise, both literal and metaphorical, is the resting for power in Fan de that is, 19th century South Asia. This traditional confrontation became popularly known as The Great Game, and though ostensibly a children's book, it's really more complex. At its core, it's an examination of conflict at multiple levels, part of the course of the human condition. The book, as is as apposite now as it was in the Bombay and Kabul of Kipling's youth, and the theme underpins several of this month's broad-ranging papers. we we'll look at disaster preparedness first. Though one might debate the relative contributions to the change, no one would refute the fact that, as starkly highlighted by the Global Terrorism Index, the world is becoming inherently less stable. Though human beings may always have had this propensity, technological changes have altered the means of expressing this phenotype on both a personal and national scale. Sadly, children are often, literally, caught in the crossfire and we would be doing them a disservice by being unprepared for either terrorism or for natural disasters. The terrorist attacks in France in 2015 and 2016, in Paris and Nice respectively, led to the development of the Orsaf and MAVI Network, the Organisation de la réponse du système de santé, to be precise. Motarme and colleagues examined the state of preparedness in French paediatric centres two years on from these pivotal episodes. The results were mixed. They found excellent intensive care coverage, but patchy in-house surgical cover, and incomplete teaching and simulation, and in places, unclear logistical arrangements. How would other centres perform? If unprepared... Then why? In the editorial by Bank and Plochnik, these findings are extrapolated and methods of teaching discussed on a local and international scale. Any paediatrician not directly involved in emergency care or trauma surgery on a day-to-day basis is, by definition, inexperienced. This inexperience is allowable, but being unprepared is not. Let's turn to behavioural conflict. Improving communication might be a well-worn mantra, but is still surprisingly badly practised. So much conflict between families and even colleagues is attributable to breakdown in this area, and, once entrenched, can be near impossible to eradicate. The conflict management framework is a tool designed to enable identification and prevent escalation before stances become factionalized. Forbart's paper describes the way in which it could be applied in the invariably highly charged environment of a pediatric oncology ward. After induction and implementation, incidence of events dropped markedly, by 64%, with qualitative improvement in staff morale. Common source of vexation, family micromanaging, the author identified, is important. Easy to fall into this pattern, hard to break. Very much along the same lines, Linney's piece, endorsed by the RCPCH and Paediatric Intensive Care Society, was catalyzed by a series of high-profile recent legal cases in which parents and paediatricians fundamentally disagreed. It discusses means of reaching a consensus in decision-making, in life-limiting illness, in children, and again, communication is at the epicentre. The guidance are the following tenets, avoidance of giving inappropriate expectations, early use of palliative care teams, the recognition of parental and practitioner stress, the assignation of a lead consultant and use of ethical, legal services and mediation services. Clinical scientists perhaps garner most credit for research advances, but as Roberts and Liabo's overview of the determinants of effective studies describes, the unsung advocates including social scientists, anthropologists, engineers, educationalists, town planners and economists, have done arguably as much. They argue that to understand determinants of health, an appreciation of how children themselves experience their health is needed, and the findings of any randomised controlled trial to make sense, qualitative work, surveys and ethnography need to be incorporated. We all know that many well-run studies flounder when the ink is dried on the main paper that no matter how well cited will never achieve its potential unless this essential homework has been done in advance the paper paves the way for the first of four installments of a mini-series on research and children by bob phillips and colleagues which examines premises for ethics around and practicalities in the area many of us are already involved in direct clinical or epidemiological studies but even those that are will learn something new. This paper, Making Research Central to Good Paediatric Practice, is my choice for the month. I hope you enjoy the rest of the journal, and be sure to check out all the other papers on our website, adc.bmj.com. Thanks for listening.